1: Welcome back to New Books in History. I'm Mark Clovis, your host for the channel. Today, we're talking with Lynn D'Middle about her book, The Second Line of Defense, American Women and World War I. Lynn, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. I'm really pleased to be here. And we're pleased to have you. I wonder if you could start us off by telling us something about yourself.
0: Sure. Um, I'm a U.S. historian. Um, I've spent most of my uh, academic life in California and I'm just recently retired from Occidental College in, in Los Angeles, where I taught uh, modern U.S. history. And uh, my my interests are the 20th century cultural history, politics, um, and women's history uh, as well.
1: And this book does seem to be a great, uh, you know, venue for you in that respect, because it's, you bring all of those elements into play in it. Exactly. How was it that you came to write this book?
0: Well, you know, I I sometimes make up stories because I worked on it for so long. I'm not sure I remember (laughs) the the origins, you know, I mean, it's at least 10 years. Um, But I think, you know, I've been thinking a little bit about it. And I think some of it has to do with the confluence of of essentially two projects my last big book was a, a book on the 1920s called the modern temper which is a, a sort of cultural social history of the of the decade uh of the 20s and then um after i wrote that i i did a, some textbook work including um uh, a text called through women's eyes in america his american history with documents which i co-authored with Ellen Du Bois. And that book brought me into, um, into really developing the second field of women's history, which I had been teaching but hadn't been writing about. And so I had now sort of two fields. And as I was writing uh, material for the women's history book, I started thinking more and more about questions I hadn't answered in the modern temper about World War I, and specifically about women in World War One, Because one of the things about the 20s is people kept saying at the time, since the war, something happened, like the war became a marker. And in particular, one of the arguments was, since the war, there's been a new woman. And I, I felt I hadn't really gotten a handle on that when I wrote the 20s book. And so I pushed back into World War one, uh, in a kind of exploratory way and ended up with a book after 10 years of, you know, exploring it.
1: I have to say the timing of the book couldn't be better. And one of the things I really enjoyed when I read it was how you explore those questions, but you also are capturing how they addressed a moment outside of the context of what happened afterward. Mm -hmm. Yes, exactly. Thank you. I'm glad you saw that. It's really
0: uh, there is a sort of difference between the experience of the war and the way it's remembered and i i tried to i tried to make a difference show the difference between those two
1: i was wondering if you could start us off by telling us something about what life was like for women in america prior to war because one of the things you do in the book is you talk about how the developments that were taking place in America, especially for women in the years leading up to World War I, played a role in terms of shaping their experiences and their responses to the war.
0: Sure, and I'm really glad you asked me that question because one of the things I like most about uh, about my book is that it gave me the opportunity to, to write fairly extensively about the pre-war era, the sort of, I guess we would call them the teens, right? And it was a period of extraordinary ferment for American women, even though, um, you know, the 20s often is considered to be the time that women uh, experience a lot of uh, social and cultural change. It's really the teens where it gets started. So, for example, uh, participation of women in the workforce uh, takes a big tick, tick up in 1910. And including something that will become very important in the 1920s, women uh, start becoming much more engaged in clerical uh, work. So there's um, um, an increase in the participation of women in the workforce. It's all in a, what we would call a sex segregated labor market, in that they were uh, primarily doing jobs that were considered women's work. So that's the sort of work side of the pre war era. The other thing that's really interesting about the teens, of course, is this is the, the suffrage movement really heats up. In this era and by World War I, 11 states had already given women the suffrage so there's this kind of real momentum to keep working to um, to make that enfranchisement uh, complete so there's a lot of activity a lot of engagement uh, in that and the other thing that I found I find interesting about uh, about the pre-war era is women were so involved in the progressive uh, reform era, trying to address the sort of social and political inequalities of, of the period. And uh, although for the most part not enfranchised, they used their persuasive powers and the powers of organizations to, um, on the state level to get a lot of state laws passed, particularly those connected to protecting women and protecting women. Uh, children. Uh, And this includes, although the the vast majority of the women reformers are sort of white middle class or elite women, this also includes African American women whose participation in the National Association of Colored Women really advances in this era uh, as well. And so going into the war, there is a network of engaged women eager to find a political voice, eager to make uh, changes in American life and to improve women's status. And so the war intersects with this dramatic and very momentous uh, period
1: for American women. You just have this phrase for it in the book, and you talk about how they're o- occupying public spaces and they're yeah. doing this with marches. They're doing this with demonstrations. Yeah. And it's a level of public engagement or or, or public demonstration that, has really uh not been seen until relatively recently, yes, women you know marched in, in for decades, but the level of it and the and the and the scope of the the range just does does seem to be much larger and then as you, as you, as, you, as you just said, it feeds directly into the war itself Yeah. and you know when I was doing the women 's march
0: in uh January, I thought a lot about the notion of women um participating in public space and also doing so in the context of a of a presidential inauguration, because one of the big pre-war marches for women was the suffrage parade in Washington, DC on the day uh, after I think it's after I may be wrong. I'm having a little uh, brain freeze, but when Woodrow Wilson was elected president. And so one of the things that um, was interesting about that march is the women are set upon by thugs they're roughed up a bit and the police don't really intervene because it's not respectable for women to be in public in that way. It's really considered pretty, pretty transgressive. And so one of the things I like about what I'm able to do and when I get finally get to World War One in the book is talk about all the parades and the way in which women now are patriotic citizens who um, who invade public space but do so in the name of supporting the war. And so they're in a position um, to break down some of the barriers that had constrained them before the war.
1: And yet not all women marched in favor of the war, as you described, Quite a few women came out against the war. Exactly. There are both, um, there's a pacifist movement before the war and there's a
0: major peace parade that's quite significant, that's uh, a women's parade. Uh, Once the war starts, you do not see public um, very many public displays against the war because there's a lot of repression of free speech during World War One. And so it's pretty dangerous to um, to be marching against the war. But you do see um, African-American women participating in a um, in a, a historic march uh uh, to protest racial violence the the, the riot in east st louis that took place in 1917 and you also see um, a wing of the suffrage movement not um parading but picketing the white house uh trying to put political pressure on on wilson to come out in support of the of the suffrage movement am, am i being clear about all these little things I, there are a lot a lot
1: of different pieces of this of this story i hope i'm I'm making it myself clear. Oh, very much so. And right. and, 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 and and it's. An, I, I like the fact that you're describing these little pieces because when I was reading it, I, I I thought that was really interesting. How, in some ways, the 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 first part of war that these women were engaged in is sort of in, on a political level is this war within the women's movement itself. How you have these women who. Up until this point, are sort of broadly agreed on this, on, on these political goals or the or this or this political agenda, and now they're at odds with each other. And there is a fragmentation that that you chart uh, in in the book.
0: Exactly, and it I think it's a good uh, reminder for people interested in women's history generally to not romanticize the past that so we're all sisters together. There are a lot of things that divide women: class, ideology, race, ethnicity. And in this case, they sort of t- the the sense is on the part of uh, women who are part of the Alice Paul's woman women National Women's Party, which is the one that's picketing the White House. They feel that um, to to beg for the vote, to um, to march for the vote, to try to earn the vote is insulting. That they want to demand the vote, and so they're uh, a much much more. Um, um, aggressive in their attitude towards, towards um, promoting suffrage. Whereas the women associated with the, which, with the nationalists, I always, it's NASA and I always have to look at my, uh, my cheat sheet to get the exact pronunciation right for you. Hold on a second. I'll do it for you. The National American Woman Suffrage Association. And this was led by Carrie Chapman Catt and that organization seizes upon the war as a perfect time for women to prove their citizenship. So they're engaged in supporting the war in lots of ways and publicizing their support for the war in order to convince Wilson, but also various uh, male uh, politicians
1: to ultimately vote for women, vote for suffrage for women. I, I took it a in one sense, it was a reflection of the maturity of the women's political movement that you could have that degree of gradation and, and differences. It wasn't a sense of of, of women who may have opposed the war subordinating that and saying, well, we have to go along with this. Instead, they're, they're, they're perfectly willing to say that you know this is part of it. They, 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 they've, they're very advanced in their thinking of not just this their goal, but the implications of what it means to be a fully participating citizen of the republic. That's a very good point. I like that. Thank you. I wish I said it. <laughs> um,
0: it's uh, there's a lot of uh, very smart uh, politicking taking place on the part of women in both both wings of this of this organization uh, of, of the suffrage movement, and I find I find them interesting. And I must say that before I started working on the book. I wasn't as very, as interested in the suffrage movement as I became after uh, reading all the very good uh, literature, historical literature that's been written on the suffrage movement. It's a very well mined uh, field. So what I was doing was pulling together ideas and you know doing a little re- original research. But I really built upon a pretty impressive uh, array of scholarship to be able to do
1: it. Though politics does loom large in your book. And the bulk yes. of it is actually focused more upon how women uh, engaged with the war with the war more directly, more on, on, on a social level, more on, mm-hmm. on a participatory level. And, mm-hmm. and you start by describing this uh, dimension of volunteerism. I was yes. wondering if you could explain a bit, uh, you know, the, the women who, who volunteer and what they were volunteering to do.
0: Okay. Well, um, I'm going to indulge myself by telling you a little bit about why I'm so interested in voluntary associations. Uh, my first book was on the Freemasons, and almost all of my work tends to have some little piece that's interested in the way in which uh, citizens turn to voluntary associations um, for uh, for a voice, for power, and also the way in which in the United States uh, there's tended to be a very strong um, link between voluntary associations and political political uh, policy. So, for example, uh, all of the combatant nations during World War I use voluntary associations to raise funds, to disseminate propaganda, to uh, drum up support for the war in general. So, uh, in some ways, when you look at the way in which women citizens are so engaged in these voluntary associations, it's really a part of what makes war very modern, uh, these World War I and World War II uh, as well. And so you find a wide range of voluntary associations on the part of women, many of which existed before the war, uh, who turned their voluntary associations to various um, to various activities, such as helping to organize um For uh, in the YWCA, for example, helping to create recreational facilities for defense workers, women defense workers, which will promote the the industry itself and make sure that the United States is able to get its munitions uh, made, but also will protect working class uh, women from exploitative labor. So you have the group which is interested in protecting working women. Do that, but also at the same time, they are helping to support the war effort.
1: You describe it as a reflection of the very modern war they were in. And you, yet you also make the point in that chapter that it was done along these very traditional lines. It's there in the title. We talk about how it's maternalism and yeah. World War I mobilization in terms of how that defined the, the level and the extent of their volunteerism.
0: Yes. Um when I earlier when I mentioned the progressive era reform era, uh women involved in that were uh engaged in promoting reforms that historians call maternalist, meaning they they sort of justified their engagement in the political arena by saying as women whether we're mothers or not, we're in a particularly uh important position to enter the political arena on behalf of the protection of the home, particularly women and children. And so the legislation that had been passed before World War I, a lot of it dealt with those issues. And so during World War I, um, the voluntary associations of women, including the the Women's uh, Council of National Defense, which is a quasi-governmental uh, agency, all of these organizations are very much engaged in continuing this conversation about protecting women and children. And so they're They're using they're doing things that are very um, uh, much engaged in the political realm, yet they're uh, justifying it in part as an extension of maternal values.
1: Which also serves as a way in some respects of limiting the scope of it. Exactly. That's exactly right. Um,
0: So, for example, um, although this this is really a part of my chapter on the women who were actually working during the war, but the maternal reformers were so worried about these women being exploited that they often talked about them in ways that made them seem very dependent, very vulnerable. Instead of being, you know, hardworking women earning their own living, they would talk about them as the mothers of the race. We have to make sure that we protect their bodies so that they will be good mothers in the future. And that does tend to, um, emphasize that women are secondary workers; are not, you know, they're, that's not their first job. So uh, you're absolutely right. There's a there's a quality that limits them when
1: they use this kind of rhetoric. And yet, one of the uh, things that comes across in your book is how there were women who chafed against that limitation and who really. Uh, push back against it in some very dramatic ways, and I'm thinking in particular the women you describe who did this thing that was so unusual, where they cross the Atlantic Ocean and they go and they uh, and they serve uh, the cause in France, not necessarily directly at the front lines, but. Given the nature of the war, they're they're in Paris. They're there close to the front lines, and and they're really seeking a degree of involvement that is is really quite daring. Uh, you know, given the assumptions about women that that even m- many members of the women's movement had.
0: Yeah, I, I I find I find that group of women quite, as you say, quite quite fascinating, and it's a kind of range of women because there are people uh, who are. Sort of relatively wealthy who've spent their time in Europe before and want to go and continue to sort of participate in refugee efforts, but there are also women who work for American organizations, essentially as social workers who are already uh, professional women who go abroad in order to uh, particularly to deal with the the refugee crisis, but also uh, once the United States has troops there. To be support, uh, sort of in, in some way, support staff for the troops. They're both nurses, but they're also what were called canteen workers. And these were um, mostly young women who went under the auspices of the Young Men's Christian Association to uh, provide moral support for the troops by op- opening little canteens and having. Making chocolate and um, being a sort of voice from home, their perception of themselves was very much as new women out there, to being you know close to the line, being part of the big show. And their letters just teem with their excitement uh, about being there. And the government, however, uh, was was willing to let women do this job, being these canteen workers because the argument was that having respectable young women uh, uh, near the front would encourage men to be sexually restrained and not visit prostitutes, which was you know, nonsense, but it was a very much a sort of um, an, a very traditional notion about women's proper place, even though they're not in a very proper place. But the women themselves, I would argue, are very, are very uninterested in that
1: in that very old-fashioned notion of what they were up to. That's one of the things that, as I was reading, I was thinking about more modern debates we've had about uh, women in the military. And you describe how these women, uh, you know, generally being, you know, middle, upper class, and and how they are socializing with these men. And as you describe, it's very proper in in, in a lot of ways, and that there doesn't seem to be a lot of incidents where that – uh, we, we have come to unfortunately associate with women in, in, in that type of environment.
0: And that's you raise an interesting question. It was a frustrating one for me as a writer because it's certainly the case that in both in the secondary literature I looked at as well as as my own research, no one's talking about sexual assault. No one's talking about it being afraid of sexual assault. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. You know, as we know, the fact that it wasn't reported doesn't, um, doesn't uh, mean that it didn't happen. However, the, these women were relatively closely chaperoned. And I think there was a lot of concern to make sure that um, they were, they were safe. And so it may, I I believe that I'm right in arguing that, that it was, you know, a much different era than what Women might experience in the in the military now, but in terms of discrimination against them about just because they're women, they're not taking them seriously. Uh, that's certainly um, um, a, a constant, I would argue, in the uh, women connected to the military. Women, except for nurses, were not actually in the military during uh, World War One. Um, they were at home, but not abroad, and uh, nurses were not given rank. They were not. Um, they didn't have the privilege that um, nurses would have by World War II of being uh, being officers. So that again was a statement of them not being quite um, viewed as legitimate by by the military. The phone operators who went and who were absolutely essential to the pro- to getting the war uh, working, right. Um, they were given they were members of the Signal Corps. They were given signal Corps uniforms. And yet they found out after the war they had not been in the Signal Corps. They were um, civilian employees and not entitled to any benefits. So, again, women who are excited about what they're doing, they're engaged in the war. And yet the, the perception of them is very much as secondary, uh, secondary figures in the, in the prosecution of war.
1: And then you can add another level of discrimination to that when you talk about the African-Americans who, the the very small group of African-American women who went abroad to uh, help uh, with the African-American troops that had been deployed and how on top of all the problems that women face, they face those problems as well it's really extraordinary there were um, a, a handful of them and only, only really
0: I think three who ultimately served with the YMCA in very seg- the, the, the men were segregated the women were segregated uh, and the discrimination that they faced was really quite extraordinary two of the women who uh, went abroad wrote a quite extraordinary uh, memoir which is available even online I think uh, one of the authors is Addie Hunton Hunt- uh, and it really is a, it's a, a a very moving testimony to their their desire to be race women to help um, to help the soldiers to promote them, and both of them are much more militant as civil rights activists after the war than they had been before because of their experiences
1: for most African American women though this is true of course for most women in general their participation in the war was primarily on the home front. And you described the really impressive range of activities that they were being called upon to perform, the roles they were that they were being called upon to perform in the workforce to uh during the war because of the call up of so many men to train and, and fight in France.
0: Yes. Yes. And um, so we've been talking about women's um, engagement in the war, primarily in terms of voluntary associations. But once you get into women who went abroad, many of them are working women, are um, nurses, telephone operators. But as you as you mentioned, there is an extraordinary uh, opening of opportunities during the war, because not only do men go off to war, but immigration is shut off during the war because of the, the European immigration, because of the Atlantic uh, being a, such a dangerous place and these soldiers are being these men who would normally have been coming were, you know, involved in their own wars in their own home countries. So the opportunity is quite extraordinary. But what is really interesting is that the participation in the workforce doesn't dramatically increase during the war. What happens is that working class women who would work anyway have new jobs They have jobs that were viewed as men's jobs. And so for a period of time, women really challenged the barriers that kept them out of skilled work, that kept them out of working, for example, in banks as clerks. That was an all-male type of uh, workplace before World War I. And now you find uh, reports in little towns about the the uh, banks being invaded by, you know, women clerks during during World War One. So it's not new women workers, but rather having more interesting jobs, higher status, better pay uh, during the war. And they are really, um, it's it's really a big a big deal in the media. There's a lot of attention to it, um, lots of pictures of these women, lots of discussions about the way in way in which women are um, really transforming uh, the workplace. It's, it's a very exciting time for them, I would argue.
1: You describe it not just in terms of the roles that they perform, but also how it really did open up all these opportunities, it, particularly when it comes to pay. They were yes. maybe not getting paid as much as men, but they were getting paid far more in these new occupations, these new jobs, than they had been in the more traditional ones they might have performed, such as uh, serving as domestics. Well this is
0: uh, that's absolutely right and that's an important part of the of this process about opening up new jobs is that the World War 1 stimulates the first great migration of African Americans uh from uh from the south to the cities of the south and of, of the north and midwest uh and it's an extraordinary opportunity because African Americans both men and women had really been denied access to factory jobs which although you and I might not think it'd be great great to work on the killing floor of a packing house, you can make a lot more money doing that than you know work, uh, being on a farm. Uh, so um, for African-American women, this is a real opportunity to get out of agricultural labor, to get out of uh, the kitchen and into better jobs. And so that's very exciting for them. And then there's also other opportunities uh, that – black women didn't get. So, for example, streetcar conductors um, increasingly uh, were women in this era, and it was very contested. In a lot of the cities, men went on strike to try to keep um, uh, companies from employing uh, women. But the women themselves said, look, we need this work. We're good workers. We should have the right to be um, conductors. And so there was a lot of of, um, interesting... Um, source material about the the fights between men and women over the right of women to be conductors in this era.
1: The the part of your book in which that intersection of race and work uh, takes place that I thought was most interesting, though, was when you describe the the inverse, which is these white women who were going to work on farms, and, and it's fascinating because, especially when it comes to the South, because Women, as you described, did work in the fields, but they tended to be black. And now you had the situation where you had these white women who, as part of the war effort, were going to work in the fields and how that was very much flew in the face of a lot of the stereotypes that had been perpetuated by race about the role of, of men and women who were white versus the ones who were black.
0: Yeah. Um, this is through the, an or, primarily through an organization called the Women's Land Army, which was a voluntary association of um, women who were determined that um, organizing um, groups of women to raise crops would both help the war effort and also be a kind of statement about women's ability to do different kinds of work. And many of these women assumed that women could be could learn to be farm managers. That it wasn't just being agricultural laborers. That there was a kind of career option uh, here. So for the most part, these um, these women, land army women, would, would go out in groups and live live separately with them, among themselves, with someone you know doing their own cooking and whatever, and then be detailed to work. With farmers and the the rates were negotiated to make sure that they were paid adequately and not exploited because they were women and not driving down men's wages for when men uh, men returned. And one of the arguments is that this way, if you have women in the in the rural areas, they won't be threatening the farm wives. So they're not living in the in the in with with the uh, with the family. Um, but these women, um, for the most part, were not. Um, um working class women, they tended to be women who had their summers off, teachers, college students, and the like, who viewed this as an opportunity to serve to serve their country but also do something kind of interesting and earn a little money. The southern piece is slightly different this The women's land army is not as successful in the South as it is elsewhere. Uh, and I would argue it's because of race, because of the anxiety about what it means to have white women uh, in, in the fields. And so some of the newspaper reportage of women, white women working in the fields really makes a big point of talking about how they're protected, how they're, um, they go home at night. They're, you know, it's nothing that's really going to too much damage their femininity or expose them to, um, to unwanted contact with African-Americans.
1: One area where you literally don't see any African-Americans, though, is in how the media portrayed women involved with the war. And yes. you spend a considerable amount of time talking about the various uh, media in which women are depicted. You talk about uh, magazine covers. You talk about the how they're portrayed in film. And it really is a very interesting uh, venue in which it, you're seeing how the, these these roles are being uh, sorted and presented for a wider audience yes
0: um, I that's probably my favorite part of the book it's the last chapter so you have to wade through everything to get to it <laughs> but it's um, it's a chapter on the you know popular culture representations and I getting back to the way you your segue into this about race I think it's a really important piece piece of the puzzle because Mainstream media, federal government propaganda, um, assumes women are white. There's, there's an absolute invisibility of women of color. But I should point out that the archives of, for example, the Women's Bureau do have, uh, very, uh, interesting, uh, images, photographs of Black women working, uh, Japanese American women in the Red Cross. Um, but that it's not for public consumption. So historians can use it, but at the time, um, other women were, were pretty invisible. And I think that's, uh, uh, something to stress. Yes. So the image of this new woman who emerges very clearly in the media, um, during the war is of a white woman. It's a young woman. Uh, and the way in which the media pre- presents, um, these new women is to show them in, In parades, in military uniforms, there's a lot of of, of depictions of women wearing pants or wearing uniforms of some kind or another. This is both the voluntary associations um, like the YWCA, YWCA, but also working women who are working in factories. So I was absolutely struck by the sort of pervasive sense of excitement about um, these images of of women who are, you know, really crossing rent, uh, gender barriers by taking on these these new jobs. At the same time, um, propaganda posters that are put out by the federal government show women in very traditional mode, as in their ha- in their kitchens conserving food or as grandmothers um, urging you to buy war bonds. So there's a real sense of of disjuncture between how the federal government is talking, visualizing women and how um, other agencies are. My favorite example of this is there's one poster that the, the U.S. government put out, the U.S. Employment Agency, that features a working woman. It's a secretary dressed in a, a, a little black skirt and a white shirt, and she's at her desk but in the background, you can see the threatening Germans. So she's really ready to, as a, as a typist, to do her job for, uh, for the military. But the YWCA poster, that fe- one of the YWCA posters that features women, shows a huge group of women marching in very masculine looking clothes, carrying things, li- carrying things like sledgehammers and wrenches uh, and it's a completely different image. It's one that's really shocking to the senses when you realize the when you juxtapose the the sort of neat little typist with the women carrying their wrenches. So there's a lot of tension in the representation, visual representation uh, in print media and in propaganda fos- posters about this new
1: woman. Yeah, I was thinking about how those contrasted with the more traditional portrayals of women being ravaged by the hun you have uh in one uh page reproduced the poster of uh not a german soldier but an ape with a cl- with a club with culture on it and there the woman is uh, is, is sort of like a, a precursor of fey ray and king kong she's at the mercy of the big ape who is who who is threatening not just culture but you know, virtuous womanhood, and how men are basically being told you need to step up and save her. So it's it's not as you described. It's not a, a total new portrayal, but there is a lot of that traditional element that that oftentimes uh, it coexists with these posters and, and this imagery, which sees women as as very empowered.
0: Yeah, that's. A, I'm glad you asked me that because it's one of my favorite pieces of the of, of that chapter. When I started looking at these posters and also looking at films about that feature women in war, I was struck by how how uh, how pervasive the rape motif was. That women were in danger from the German rapist and you really men needed to you know step up to the plate and save women uh, from what was literally a fate worse than death. And the thing that I found very interesting about this is that I, as I was doing the research for it and the the reading in the history of film and uh, and also theater, the rape motif was pretty um, a pretty significant piece in popular culture in the early 20th century before the war. There are a lot of there's a lot of attention to the dangers that women that women face from unscrupulous men. Um, most people uh, or many people have seen the sort of dreadful birth of a nation uh, film, the, the racist uh, depiction of reconstruction. And that, you know, an important sub- subplot of that is the rape of the white woman by the black man. And so what I argue in uh, in talking about the rape motif in film and imagery and in in, during World War One is that Americans were sort of primed to think about women's vulnerability and to sort of associate a danger with a racial or an ethnic other. And so that, that it makes perfect sense that you'd see so much of this uh, this rape um, content in, in the world war one imagery and particularly in the, in the films. So you have that as a really important piece that suggests how, how conventional and Victorian in many ways, the um, visions of, of women were. But on the other hand, in uh, films, you have women who are heroines, who are spies, who are doing all sorts of extraordinary um, um, daring-do feats to, um, to be participants in the war effort. And so that it's, a, it's a split, as in many of the chapters. Traditional expectations uh, coming up against a completely different notion of women being heroines.
1: As you describe it in... Uh, many of these films including the one that you uh, say we the one we have extant Wolf of Culture that even when the woman is uh, engaged in very uh, daring very masculine activities such as your very physical activities even to the point where uh, she's able to uh, knock out uh, the enemy and, 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 and save the day it ends with her being sort of placed back in her feminine role through marriage and and the one where, where that really stands out that I thought was really funny was the uh, movie you described uh, that came out soon after the war uh, where the women are uh, you know when the men come home and the women have assumed all these occupations at home they're in charge of the government they're they're, they're charged all over the place and, and it's almost as if it's it's saying you know that, that that women you know that you know sort of reflecting that that undercurrent of fear that 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 is also in these other things. that wouldn't maybe getting a little too uh independent and, and 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 capable.
0: Yes. Um that's called oh the film was called O You Women and it's not extant. So but I read the I read the script was available and I looked at a lot of imagery and it's it's really quite extraordinary because it, it centers in some ways around women's clothing because in the, for comedic effect during the war, all the women start wearing pants. And when they come, when the men and they're the mayors and they're taking over all the offices and when the men come back, the women don't want to put on dresses again. And so there's this real, um, real way of using the the sort of cross-dressing issue, which comes out repeatedly in the in the films and in, in the media, uh, using that to stand for the threat that that the war produces, the notion that it might really upturn up upend the gender order by giving women too much power uh, and wearing the pants in the family, so to speak.
1: And yet and, and yet, one of the most telling aspects of that whole movie what, for me was that it was co-written by a woman, Anita Loose. Yes, Anita, Anita Luce, who I think that's how we pronounce her name. And she's the one who did
0: um, uh, the original Gentleman Preferred Blondes.
1: So... To what degree did those concerns sort of foreshadow what happens to women after the war? How, how did the war change their lives and, and how did the war not change their lives in essence?
0: Um, I would have loved to have found that the war was transformative because I think, you know, it makes for you know, an easier way to explain the book rather than the sort of nuanced argument that I end up uh, making. Um, one of the things that, um, I think is really important to note is that this challenge in the workplace uh, for women to have access to better jobs, higher skilled jobs, to quote men's jobs, to break down sex segregated labor disappears completely after the war. There's, they return to women's jobs. Clerical work may have expanded uh, during the war, but other than that, uh, it is pretty much back to business as usual, and this includes the experiences of African American women who end up returning to agricultural and farm labor. So, you know, not much happens in the in the realm of work. That's pretty clear. Certainly, one could argue that the war promoted the suffrage movement. I think it definitely accelerated the passage of the amendment that enfranchised women. But it didn't. Um, it didn't cause it. It was the the momentum was there. It speeded it up. And then we have to argue. Well, you know, women got the vote, but lots of women couldn't vote because they were black women in the South. And also, women weren't really able to turn having the vote to much political power. They weren't able to use it, for example, to improve women's access to the workplace. So there's there's some change that the war promotes, but not necessarily causes. Um, the thing that I I found um, most interesting about the change has to do with the sort of physical freedoms that women had, and this returns us to the women that you found so interesting—those women who went abroad, right, and were doing such dramatic things, uh, or the women who are marching, who are who are wearing wearing uh, new clothes and finding a kind of new physical freedom. So I think there was a kind of um. Sense of a breakdown of notions about conventional personal behavior, the sort of restraint of respectability that had had been so much a part of the 19th century, I do think really uh, is put uh, given a, a sort of um, redirection as as a result of, of much of the war activity and the sort of opportunities that women had, however short, to really challenge uh, gender. Um, Gender conventions.
1: Well, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before you go, uh, could would you tell us what you're working on now?
0: Yes, um, I have a bunch of uh, a bunch of little projects, but the um, and I'm really looking forward to a number of opportunities to go talk about the book. As I told you before we started, I'm off to the University of Texas uh, Rio Grande next uh, next week to talk about um, about the book. But I also decided that I wasn't quite willing to give up war and women yet. And uh, so I decided to do a document um, book, a collection of documents for the classroom on working women during World War Two to see, you know, what I what, how to sort of build upon the expertise I developed for this book to try to sort out what happened during uh, World War Two. Because for one thing, the same thing happens after. After World War II, women uh, do lose uh, some of the access to the good jobs they had during the war. So that's my major um, project, and I'm really, really enjoying uh, finding interesting documents to put to get put together in a, in a collection.
1: That sounds like a fascinating project.
0: <laughs> it is. It's great. I just got permission today from a oral history archive to use some material that hasn't been published before of uh, two women who were active in unions during uh, the war, one an African-American woman, and another a woman who later became very active in the feminist movement after, after World War II. Wow.
1: Yeah, it's good. Well, best of luck with the project. Thank you. Uh, Lynn, thank you very much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thanks. Thanks very much.